0: You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of natural climate solutions and help demystify this growing field. We're your hosts. I'm Ida. I'm Kate. And I'm Julia. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Marty Odlin, Marty is the founder and CEO of Running Tide, a company that's harnessing the oceans and robotics to accelerate sustainable aquaculture. Running Tide produces high-quality shellfish and also leverages their technology to scale up kelp as a form of highly permanent carbon sequestration. And that's one of the things we're really excited to go into depth around today, looking at kelp as a carbon sink. Marty, we are so excited to have you.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
2: So Marty, you have a fascinating background, perfectly calibrated for the things that you're doing today. As we are aware, your family's been in the fishing business for a long time, and you have managed fishing boats, and but also have a background in engineering. How did you come to do what you're doing today? Tell us the story of how you got here.
1: Um, Sure. I've been very lucky to grow up in a, a commercial fishing family. Um, so, you know, every everyone that I grew up with is involved in the fishing industry and has been for, you know, a long time. I've 13 family, like family members, cousins, uncles, grandfather, uh, who are all fishing captains. And I grew up in that business from a very early age. Like first thing I remember is being on a fishing boat, catching codfish, with my dad. And then I'm, you know, spending a lot of time with my mom and shipyards as we were working on the boats. those are like early memories and just growing up in that environment. I was always obviously drawn to the ocean and interacting with the ocean and always around people who were entrepreneurial and highly engaged with the natural world. Just as I was growing up in the business and going on lobster boats and then working on the trawlers and I was always drawn towards kind of the tech the technological aspects of the business and to a point where you know that's quite precocious with the engineering aspects of things and it made a lot of sense for me to go to college and rather than become a fishing captain, which is a whole whole skill set in itself, like was drawn towards the engineering and went to engineering school. And then I had a career in as a engineer, as like a design engineer. And then I worked at Columbia University supporting research projects, which was like really exciting and fun as well. And then 10 years ago I came home to manage some fishing, the family business, managing fishing vessels, and got really interested in the management of the fisheries and how people approached fisheries from an interaction with nature and a policy perspective, and then digging into the engineer the automation possibilities of f- fishing vessels and data collection, etc. So I've just been kind of accumulating all these, you know, skills and experiences that lend themselves well to doing carbon removal and ecosystem restoration at scale. But mostly I was just trying to solve the problems that are in front of me and be useful to the people around me and be useful to my community. In 2017, my family exited that fishing business and I had the opportunity to start running Tide. And I, like I said, I've accumulated all these experiences and all these skills. And I just thought it was an opportunity to approach the ocean in a little bit different way. And that's how I got to start running Tide. It was sort of an outgrowth of all these experiences that I'd had and the, the dire, dire need I saw in the ecosystem. And that's why I started Running Tide to, to, to meet that call.
3: Let's jump into what you're doing now then. What is Running Tide?
1: So Running Tide is a is a company using emerging technologies to meet the dual crises of biodiversity loss and relatedly overabundance of carbon in the upper atmosphere. The world has been divided over the past 30 years between kind of extraction activities in industry and then conservation activities that basically say don't touch the ocean. There is historical precedence into intervention, but there's uh there hasn't been any like active industrial scale intervention into like rebuilding what has been lost. The ecosystems we're talking about, like, you know, whether it's oyster beds, clam beds, kelp forests, etc, are not necessarily great at healing themselves. So if you leave them alone, they don't necessarily come back. It's just like old growth forests. Like you, you disturb an old growth forest, you cut it down. It doesn't just grow back as an old growth forest. There's a level of homeostasis that needs to be maintained. And so I felt like when I was working in the fishing industry, I just felt like it was always like, do less bad. And then You know, from the extraction perspective, it was like people just trying to do enough to survive. In sum total, we were just drawing down uh, what nature could provide without putting anything back. So Running Tide really is about putting things back. So it's about large-scale restoration efforts, large-scale carbon removal in the ocean to try to put things back to the way they were.
0: And you mentioned harnessing tech innovation as a big piece of that. Could you say a little bit more about what tech or harnessing and sort of how that comes in?
1: Leveraging these natural systems is probably the most multidisciplinary effort you could imagine, right? It involves like high level complexity, um, modeling, and data science of of massive scale systems. That also comes down to leveraging automation so that we can do these activities at scale. So it's everything from data science, automation, linking those things together with software, sensor development. So from a tech perspective, we're sort of utilizing like almost every tool in the tool chest to be able to develop and then launch and operate technologies in the ocean that can scale to rebuild ecosystems and remove carbon. There hasn't been an industry that's really developed around like the large scale restoration of coastal ecosystems or large scale uh, carbon removal activities in the ocean. So not only do we have to build up all these emerging technologies to allow us to do this in a thoughtful way, we actually also have to build up the operations arm that's able to to do this manipulation. And so it's a really interesting effort where we have heavy equipment operators, fishermen sitting alongside data scientists and hardware and sensor development people. And we're all working together in one company to make these systems and these projects happen.
0: Yeah, I can see that. This is really sort of an exciting and diverse group of folks that you've you know, brought around the table to make this happen. So could you give us some of the concrete examples of um, some of the interesting ways in which you're applying robotics and data science to doing what you're doing? You know, are you applying robotics in the actual aquaculture operations or in kelp harvesting or, you know, help us get a little bit more color around that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So our shellfish farms are basically designed to we we call them the infinite oyster machine or infinite shellfish machine. What we're working on is like highly automated systems that are able to grow ever increasing amounts of shellfish to survivable sizes for restoration efforts. It's really hard to put out like baby oysters in an environment and have them survive. Um, so you have to grow things up to a certain size where you can start placing them on the bottom and they have a high chance of of survival. As a concrete example, we have. We build robots that help clean and grade the baby oysters and count them. And we use machine vision to check their health, check growth curves, connect that to environmental conditions. And then our data science team can help us figure out where, you know, what environmental conditions lend themselves well to certain growth curves, which allows us to pick sites better for restoration activities. And so these are like highly technological systems that get a lot of leverage off each you know, each person that's out in the water, but the sum totals, we're just able to create this incredible data set and production capability, and they learn off each other. And that allows us to to produce at scales that would be nearly impossible to do without these tools, and also to work towards a level of understanding of these ecosystems and these foundational species that allow us to pick better spots that are highly likely to be restored. Um, one of the things that's really scary (laughs) about the, about the ocean right now is it's changing so rapidly, um, that it's not about putting things back the way they were. It's about finding what can now be successful in a spot that has been like essentially devastated. You, You find an oyster, an oyster bed that's been, you know, that was dredged to 50 years ago and it's, it's no longer functional. It's like, you you can't necessarily just put it back to an oyster bed because like now the, that ecosystem no longer has a homeostasis and, and, and environmental conditions are changing rapidly. Like the water is warming, it's slightly more acidic. So how do you map and measure and, and anticipate what, how you can rebuild that ecosystem so that you can, you know, provide structure and biodiversity to what's essentially a desert. So That's where those systems are working, you know, in our uh, carbon removal operations, it's the automation systems come less actually touching the ocean and more about just in our, in the supply chain and how do we produce these kelp habitats at massive scale that are, that will be successful. We can keep the costs so, so low such that it's a viable carbon removal solution financially. So, you know, we're utilizing robotics in a variety of different ways, but basically just to just provide the leverage we need.
2: I just want to dig in a little bit more, Marty, into the actual mechanism of how Running Tide is addressing climate change. So uh, it sounds like you have different lines of business. There's the sustainable aquaculture production, and that's related to coastal restoration. You're restoring oyster um, reefs, oyster beds. There's also sequestration of carbon through kelp. Um, What's your theory of change? Is it let's provide a low carbon protein source? Is it, you know, scale up kelp as a means of carbon removal um, while also with with both of these potentially supporting uh, coastal adaptation? I'm just curious to hear how would you describe your theory of change and how does it relate to your various lines of of business? And did I capture your various lines of business?
1: Yeah, those plus, you know, we have like this... uh... (laughs) incredible data set that's getting built up and that can be leveraged in a variety of different ways. So there's a bunch of monetization strategies. Our mission is to like harness the ocean to ensure a biodiverse future. I think biodiversity ultimately is the biggest source of wealth we possibly have and by ensuring biodiversity in the future, we're going to have to have, um, have to restore the systems that provide homeostasis to our environment. But the most important thing really just needs to be getting the carbon out of the atmosphere. There's nothing else that really matters. We can do everything right and climate change will will destroy all of it. <laughs> so ultimately, like, you know, it makes our job in, in some ways simple because while well, we have this grand vision for how humanity can approach the ocean in a really integrated way and, and, and different than, than it's been approached in the past, I think that ultimately, like what what should be top of mind for everyone is just getting carbon out of the atmosphere. Because if the oceans acidify, there's nothing I can do to rebuild shellfish beds and rebuild coastal kelp forests. Like, like you, we have to remove carbon. And so, you know, my my theory of, <laughs> my theory of change is that there's a there's a giant Godzilla out there that's burning towns all over the world. That's you know stealing fish from our waters. That's acidifying our bays and wreaking havoc in our weather systems. And and until we like kill that monster, the rest of the work is interesting, necessary, but ultimately futile.
2: Yeah. So if slaying Godzilla is the number one um, aim, uh, which I think Ida and Kate and I would would also agree is... is First and foremost, what we should be doing as, as a planet uh, these days. How do you think about allocating resources or prioritizing? You know, I heard you mention investing in robots for sustainable oyster production, but and you could correct me. I, my my impression is that oysters are less in the carbon removal side of things, right? Um, whereas carbon removal would be the kelp work that you're doing. So, how do you think about prioritizing among all these different opportunities? And does that mean that The kelp work is your top priority now, or is there something else that I haven't mentioned? It's a good question. I mean, my priority is I have to build a company with a
1: set of capabilities. The capabilities that we're developing at Running Tide are useful across a lot of different opportunities. If I make massive hatcheries, like highly automated hatcheries that can produce shellfish and kelp you know at astonishing scales and low cost that allows me to do a number of different things but the way to look at running tide is we're just like in some ways we're just laying pipe um, and building tools techniques and infrastructure to operate in the ocean and interact with these natural systems and help preserve and accelerate na- these natural systems at really large scale and it's almost the same set of tools techniques and infrastructure and we live in a capitalist society, so it's where we can make money. And what's what's interesting is how uh, how much the carbon removal market has accelerated over the past eighteen months to be a point where you can build viable businesses just doing carbon removal, and that's really exciting to us because we built this company to do that. But w- you know, we just thought there was going to be a lot of other a lot of stuff we had to do first to build up to that, and now things are shifting so rapidly. I mean. In, on a month by month basis, right? It's like month by month basis the carbon removal market is adjusting and changing and developing. And we think we have a fantastic solution, uh, carbon removal solution. Um, it's something that we've developed over a long time. It's been something I've probably I've been thinking about since two thousand eight, turning over in my head since two thousand eight. So I've been thinking about carbon removal for a very long time, and we think we've identified like a very, very promising technology. And I think that as the world is kind of like going through that learning curve of carbon removal, they're starting to value the same things that I came to value, which is, you know, immediacy, permanence, scalability, and low cost. Um, those are the things I thought were really important in developing carbon removal technologies. And that's why we came to the solution we came to. And now the rest of the world seems to be coming in that direction as well. Um whether that's us being good or that's us being lucky, I, I don't know. But I feel like the world is coming to the same conclusions that we came to, and that we've been building towards, you know, for a very long time and for the for the life of this company.
3: So, what, one of the things I, I really enjoyed um, that we talked about in our, our sort of pre-recording call um, the other week was you said you said something around like really seeing solving climate change as like the biggest industrial revolution of scale up that would be needed in our lifetime. I don't want to put put words in your mouth, but I, I wonder if, if perhaps uh, you could make, spell that out a bit more um, for listeners and, and maybe tie that to you know, why you came to the solution that you did.
1: Yeah. One of the hardest things for people to get their minds around, and, 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 and me included, is is. The scale of the problem is so astonishing. Like the IPCC report, I think says 450 gigatons. is like the minimum we need to get to 1.5 degrees C. Coming out of COP26 and seeing the results there, it's like probably going to have to do more. So, you know, there's there's a lot of credible people that think we need to move a trillion tons of mass. Like we just have to move a trillion tons of carbon dioxide in some sort of storage, like basically turn it into a rock or put it under tremendous pressure or find some other you know, durable storage system, that effort, right. What I just said, a trillion tons, like nobody's ever done that purposefully. Nobody stood up an industry like that with the express purpose of moving that much mass. Um, it's essentially the oil and gas industry reversed and compressed into 20 years, but then you have to add like, you know, the oil and gas industry was generating energy and this is going to probably be taking a lot of energy, you know, um, to, to develop this, this amount of order. So I, I just, I look at this as probably the largest industrial effort in history. The only thing that even comes close is the the spool up to World War II. But it's like the spool up to World War II, the work the, the US did to develop these materials and move them around the world. That's the, Even that is a fraction of this trillion tons that we're talking about moving. And I don't think it's a scale that we can credibly get to short of like, short of fusion energy, essentially. I, I think that it's, there's some interesting geothermal stuff but it's like short of leveraging natural systems it's the only way for us actually move that mass efficiently for under you know 100 or 200 dollars a ton so that's kind of the, the the starting point in the framework through which i sought out solutions
0: no that that makes a lot of sense so maybe just so breaking it down so what we're actually talking about here is is kelp as a as a sequestration tool. So could you just tell us a little bit about how kelp acts as a as a carbon removal solution? We sort of talked about the the macro role it plays, but what's actually going on?
1: Yeah, well, kelp is really interesting. I mean, it's, kelp is used as a catch all term. Really, it's 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 macroalgae. But kelp or, or macroalgae is is a it's a a set of incredibly fast growing species. Some of the fastest growing species of anything on earth, fastest biomass accumulators, faster, fastest carbon accumulators. Um, Kelp uses the sun effectively to pull CO2 and carbonates out of the, out of the ocean. So they're fantastic carbon sinks. Um, Generally they're short-term carbon sinks because they're attached to shore. And you know, when they die or dissolve, like some, some of the, of the, embodied carbon in the biomass floats out to the deep sea and sinks into the deep sea. There's estimates it's like 200 million tons per year is like naturally sequestered that way, pulled down into the deep sea. Our idea is that the the open ocean is a viable place to grow macroalgae, provided we are able to provide substrates for the macroalgae to grow on, to accumulate on. And then The great part then is if we sink them and they're out in the open ocean, a hundred percent of the carbon thereabouts or close to will sink below the thermocline and there be sequestered forever. So just kelp is essentially like a direct ocean capture facility that just grows itself. (laughs) So it's, uh, it's really nice. The system we're talking about where we're setting, you know, our system where we set these seeded substrates out into the open ocean. They float along a trajectory um, and over something at least a thousand meters deep and then have like a time sinking mechanism to sink that substrate and the accumulated biomass below the thermocline um, is just basically just mimicking that natural process and just scaling it up and utilizing space that is not being utilized specifically for that purpose.
2: And, And to follow up on that, you know, I'm curious to little dig a little bit deeper on Uh, no ocean pun intended, I should say, dive a little deeper Um, (laughs) and help and, you know, the challenges of using it, right? Like, so is this something that's being done at scale now? Um, If not, why, you know, what are the particular challenges to that? And do you have to use particular species? Um, You know, how do you get it to perform uh, in the way that you want it to?
1: you know, we have a few things going on as a company so that we have, we are simultaneously building production ramp to do these activities. Like when we're talking hundreds of thousands or mega, you know, of tons or megaton, or people throw a gigaton a lot, but I don't think people quite realize how big that is and what that entails. There's a huge supply chain, you know, for us, we're moving very little mass out into the ocean and then we're accumulating the mass, the carbon mass out there. Um, but even still, we have like this huge supply chain and production ramp and building up all the capabilities we need to, to do to operate at scale. So that's ongoing work. And to get these systems up and running takes years. And then we also have our research and data side where we're developing the tools, techniques and infrastructure to be able to verify that this, you know, what's happening um, and doing a lot of ocean modeling to make sure that what we're doing is is truly additive and you know, trying to characterize what externalities could be as we scale these systems up, et cetera. We are building the capabilities to operate at massive scale. Um, And that work has been ongoing for about four years. And we're getting ready to launch these efforts at, like, well, not at the scale of the problem, at least like at a relatively large scale, relative to other carbon removal activities at at the moment, Um, most of the effort, most of the effort out in the ocean is, gathering the data to build the verification and modeling systems necessary to understand all the ins and outs of how the carbon, where the carbon goes and uh, how much is sequestered and how much is additional, et cetera.
0: That's super interesting. Could you tell us a little bit, like what is the state of kelp as a form of a carbon credit today like could we could we buy that today or if we did purchase this from you is it more sort of a an informal mechanism today is there a protocol that exists
1: um there's protocols in development i don't think that there's any carbon removal protocol that's like necessarily rock solid at this point i mean i think the market's changing i don't think the market's that developed I'd say that across like almost any carbon removal right now. It's it's like nothing's 100% locked in. This is what the protocol are going to be for the next, you know, 30 years for the duration of this fight. Um, I think that the world is going to be constantly reassessing what carbon removal and carbon credits and carbon offsets mean. I think there's going to be projects generally stood up, especially with coastal restoration, where there's there's going to be projects that get executed and funded that in the future will look, you know, not that efficient, but they have other ancillary benefits. But yeah, we're still short of a large scale commercialization of our system. We're very close on, you know, developing these, these verification systems and, and integrating into, you know, uh, carbon removal protocols and registries, et cetera. But um, yeah, we're not there yet. That's still, that's still to come. But like, when I say that, this isn't an invented process right so it's not like a question of whether this is a carbon sink or not it's just a question of like okay can you get the verification protocols such that you can develop a financing mechanism around this that can be sustainable in the long term and solid enough for these companies financial institutions and countries to count towards their their obligations i think that's something that's challenging across all natural systems where it's just these all natural systems are somewhat ethereal in nature where they're, they're uh And does that match up with the needs of the customers? I think that's, that's kind of an ongoing question, but we feel really good about the, the durability of what our, of our solution and we feel really good about the basic physics. So I think that it's just a matter of time for us and a matter of building up the data set um, and get to a point where we feel like it's beyond, beyond reproach we're really high quality credits. And then we'll be ready for large-scale commercialization.
2: So speaking of ethereal in nature, yeah. it sounds like you're still working on the science behind this, right? And getting the verification set up, collecting the data. would love to just hear, and, and that you mentioned, right, natural systems are dynamic, but they do provide value to society in terms of their carbon sequestration potential and providing immediate impact in this critical decade. So I'm curious, what is our understanding or, you know, the state of our understanding of how permanent is kelp-based sequestration and how do we know that kelp is highly permanent?
1: Yeah, we have to make a distinction between kelp that has been actively transported across the thermocline versus, which is a thousand meters deep in the ocean. So like if you're actively transporting carbon below the thermocline, like that's basic oceanography, like we're on solid ground, you get like 800 years of permanence, um, I mean, there's nothing in in the realm of science that's beyond reproach, but that's like pretty close. Like that's pretty rock solid that like you get a lot of permanence as as soon as you get below the the thermocline. I just want to draw the distinction there between that and coastal kelp ecosystems, which are like super dynamic, live, die. Some percentage of it gets transported to the deep ocean, but like that's trying to figure out how much that is. That's a very different thing. So I can talk about one or the other, but they're not the same, right? So Kelp credits for kelp, coastal kelp forests are something that I think is a lot further away from being monetizable than sinking kelp, kelp actively into the deep ocean.
3: I, I wonder if we could just take like one or two steps deeper into the, the sort of why and the science behind this, this deep sea kelp sinking. I, I don't know that it's necessarily obvious for, for those who aren't in the space. Why, why does that sequester carbon permanently or differently than the coastal kelp restoration?
1: So the deep ocean, so under a thousand meters in the ocean are is a massive, one, it's a massive carbon sink. It's also a massive cap, uh, carbon storage system for the earth, right? There's 37,000 gigatons of carbon below the thermocline. W- one simple way to think about it is that you have two different oceans. You have the ocean at the surface above the thermocline and you have the ocean below the thermocline.
3: And quickly, what what is a thermocline?
1: So like above the thermocline, the ocean mixes and then below the thermocline, it doesn't mix with the ocean below the thermocline or like it, there's not much mixing between the upper and lower layer of the ocean, except in a few upwelling and downwelling sites around the world. But generally you can think of those as like two different oceans almost. If you drop carbon from like the upper ocean to the lower ocean, you know, then to the deep ocean, then you're in, then you're in like a long-term storage scenario. So you're taking carbon from the short-term carbon cycle. That's like ocean to atmosphere to land, you know, that, that short-term carbon cycle, you take it out of that and put it into deep storage. And uh, similar to how Charm Industrial takes short-term carbon storage in the form of like crop waste and then injects it into the ground and puts it into deep storage. It's very, very similar. So you have the, the short-term carbon cycle. At the surface of the ocean, then you have the long-term carbon cycle that's at the, in the deep ocean. So if we're taking biomass from the short-term and putting it into the long-term storage, that's effectively permanent carbon removal for the purposes of this killing Godzilla that works.
0: Are there any environmental risks or unintended consequences associated with either sinking all this biomass onto the floor or simply just growing more kelp in the ocean or coasts more generally?
1: I, like it's totally a fair question. I will answer the question, right? But it's also like an, it's an interesting thing where people, it's like, what are the risks to not doing this stuff? Like what are the, and what are the environment? It, it, it kind of right. like, you have to start like looking at the earth as a system in a broad, in a broad respect and starting to assess risks in everywhere. Cause to be totally real, like, to, and I feel like we're in free fall, like status quo of everything is where it's like, We're going to go splat as a civilization and as a natural system, you have to contextualize everything against status quo and against like, what are the alternatives If the alternative is large scale mineralization. Like that has for carbon removal or even large scale, like afforestation, right? All of these things are going to have disturbances across all these systems that they connect with. There is no, like you can do this as long as it doesn't have any other effect. That's not a reasonable metric for us to assess carbon removal. There's that saying we're getting, if we're going to be gods, we might as well be good at it. I just, I think it's really important to contextualize all these conversations around what are risks and what are acceptable disturbances to ecosystems and what are not in in the context of what we're actually witnessing. We're witnessing the flattening of ecosystems around the world. Our kids are going to look around at the world and see something completely different than what we're seeing right now. I've been thinking about this lately when I'm driving my kids to school or walking them to the bus. And like, I'm looking at the trees around, it's like, there's some 150 year old oak trees we walk under and there's a high likelihood that those won't be there or they will die. Something will happen to to them over the next like 20 or 30 years. And my kids won't see them. They won't be walking to their kids to the same, under the same, in the same ecosystem. I always like feel like I need to reframe it to that level and then we can engage in like okay where is it appropriate to put a kelp forest coastally does it have to be where there was one before or can we like stand up new ones as long as we're in an area where it's like there is no you know structure and very minimal biodiversity can you put a new can you put a kelp forest where there wasn't one can you put a can you put a forest in the desert is that okay they're interesting questions now specifically for kelp for carbon removal in the deep ocean it's we have Tremendously impacted the biological pump, which is how much biomass is moving across the thermocline, um, has been greatly reduced and projects to be even more radically reduced through the effects of climate change. You know, we can see like phytoplankton levels dropping. There's a paper I saw that's like 90 percent reduction in phytoplankton um, growth in the open ocean, which is like terrifying because that's where half the oxygen in the world comes from. So these benthic ecosystems where we'd be sinking, the, sinking our kelp are like actually seeing a lot less energy flow down to them than they have in the past. So up to a certain level of activity, like running tide and running tide type activities of sinking, sinking biomass into the deep ocean will just be like a restoration. We're just bringing it back up to a baseline in terms of the amount of energy getting transported and carbon getting transported into these deep ocean systems we're feeling pretty comfortable about the impacts it would have on the benthic ecosystem. Um, it seems very, any times for the next like five to eight years, we're probably not going to be like really making any measurable impact to what those systems have seen in the past at the surface is a little bit more interesting question because in some respects we're seeing it with our, in, in a lot of our sensors out there, we're seeing like, you know, ocean acidification is real. It's like, that's, it's no joke. It's happening. Um, And we will have a positive effect by growing kelp, you you like buffer the ocean. So that'll be a huge benefit to the ecosystem. On the flip side, we're introducing much more flotsam to the environment. So we'll see accumulations of, you know, biomass, like, like fish swimming underneath our farms because they just like the structure. And, you know, that can have, that can have effects that we need to monitor on how that will change ecosystems as we get to massive scales. But it's highly unlikely that we're causing any any, like any damage, no matter what scale we get to in the next like four or five years, it's just like, not going to be like that measurable. It's something we're super aware of. And our team talks about every day, but um seems pretty unlikely. We're going to have like any measurable or major impact, negative impacts, especially when you like, Layer those against the, the existing trajectory of all of these ecosystems. Certainly, we could have some effects as we scale up, as we get to like hundreds of megatons, but like in the short term, it's just all going to be part of our data collection activities. And then we'll have to like refer them to our advisory panels and um, generate models around them and make assessments. And at some level, at some level, we'll have to, you know, we'll st- start to have to limit our activity because it could have. Um, effects. It's just not clear where that level will be. Like it's anywhere from 200 megatons per year to like 5 gigatons. It's kind of like the upper limit of where would where we could be for carbon removal. What's interesting though is like all of this terrestrial, ocean-based, nature-based solutions are all going to have to build as an institution, an integrated institution of like how do we manage. The, the earth that we live on. Is it appropriate for it all to be done by governments or is it appropriate for it all to be done by like capitalist systems? None of the institutions built up that I just mentioned, the institution of capitalism, the institution of uh, world governments, the institutions of academia, even just like in the institution of, you know, of industry and nonprofits, like all of these institutions were not built to solve the problems we're facing. They weren't designed to solve problems of like how you manage nutrient flows around the world. So it'll be really interesting. You know, it's going to be an exciting and interesting and dynamic time for everybody involved in the space because we have to figure out how to like work. All these institutions have to figure out how to work together to like make sure that we're drawing down all this carbon in a way that's additive to, to nature and biodiversity and also additive to the health and well-being of all the people on the earth.
3: Yeah. Oh man. We'll have to have a have to have a whole whole separate episode around um, the institutions of <laughs> capitalism <laughs> and world government and world roles. Yeah, that's a heavy you one. Yeah. This. As, as tempted as I am to, <laughs> to dive deeper there, um, I want to maybe maybe change gears just a bit and, and come back to something you said earlier because I think, really, a lot of people are coming to these similar realizations that if that we are in this really deep, really dire climate and ecological position. And you know, maybe that has driven some of the changes we've seen in carbon markets and, and climate action more broadly in the last you know, 6, 12, 18, 24 months. You mentioned earlier that you, know, you were sort of thinking about carbon removal several years ago when maybe the market was still too early. would love to hear your thoughts on where where are we now? How have the conversations with investors changed? Um, and where do you think we're headed in terms of carbon, carbon markets?
1: <laughs> I think that we're at a point where it's... And it's inevitable that carbon removal specifically permanent is going to be seen as kind of the highest value form of carbon. So I think that we've been, as this has been rolling forward, you're starting to see different values assigned to different levels of carbon removal and offsets, et cetera. And I think that we're at a point now where we're getting into this place. And I think it's really exciting where there's like, you have a variety of durations and a variety of quality and a variety of like consistency of offsets and so you're going to have this market with a bunch of different species and qualities of carbon removal so it's not like there's like carbon's going to be 150 dollars a ton it's going to be okay like uh carbon removed for a thousand years that that gets delivered within a year, like the carbon is actually removed within a year, is going to be worth a certain amount of money. And then carbon that gets removed over 30 years, like in a forest, is going to be worth a different amount of money. Like that's a, a different type of credit. And I think that it's, I think there's going to be portfolios that emerge. A company will want a portfolio of solutions. And I think this is already happening. So I'm not like saying like, I'm not making any predictions. I just think this is happening and it's really likely to continue where people will buy up a variety of different types of carbon credits to fill out a portfolio that matches the kind of uh, requirements of the organization. So if there's a company, they're going to have to follow some set of rules that will right now is being driven by just like an understanding by society of like what's necessary for them. But it will also eventually that'll get codified. And then people will be buying a portfolio of solutions that, and then over time, all those different um, prices, Will change according to the need, the different needs and different understandings of the the value of a running tide, kelp sinking credit. I expect to change over time. Like it, it could be worth two hundred and fifty dollars today, and then we could pull in some data, find some different variabilities, and it's like okay, then the price, the perceived value goes down a little bit. But then over time, people start to want more and more. Permanent credits, and then the price could go up. And then you, you know, and what is a permanent credit? Is it two hundred years, or is it a thousand years, or is it a million years uh, of permanence? And I, I expect to have dynamic pricing, like like volatile pricing across all these different kind of species and qualities of carbon removal credits. Um, so <laughs> it's like a bunch of different stocks. There's going to be a variety of different stocks, and they're all going to have different prices.
2: Yeah, Marty, I mean, this is such a dynamic space. And um, I think a lot of what you mentioned around, um, you know, building portfolios, addressing different um, characteristics of credits and uh, having more transparency and standardization around how things are priced, I, 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 the next year, two years in this market will be a vast transition and change. And, you know, and I expect it to continue as, as the market scales up. Um, but in one minute or less, speaking of scaling up, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you do to scale nature-based solutions?
1: Let me think. I would say, okay, you know, what, you know, actually, I think the thing that could be, I, I think two things need to be done to scale up. I, I'm going to say all nature-based solutions, but I, I, I think or there's three things. One, put a price on carbon, like a tax carbon tomorrow, like carbon emissions. I would tax them tomorrow, like no question. I that's still blows my mind that nobody that that that's not like that hasn't been done. Um, like where the money goes, like from that tax, like I, it almost doesn't matter. But we have to tax it. We have to price the externality. So I'd do that because that will inevitably trickle back into nature-based solutions. Um, number two, I would I would put billboards everywhere and get Joe Biden to make speeches and do everything we can to raise awareness and of, uh, and set it as a societal priority such that we can like remove a lot of the red tape and construct new regulatory pathways to allow this stuff to happen. Because I do feel like that's like a major limitation on a lot of these types of projects where there's just, and then finally I would, especially for nature-based solutions, I would figure out a way to generate a biodiversity credit. So in addition to a carbon credit, I figure out a way to make a biodiversity credit happen because I think that would then very rapidly accelerate not just nature-based solutions, but what they look like and then look like something that's better for the long, long, long-term future if we had biodiversity credits. Because I think that that's the next fight
3: And uh, the next one, likewise, how can listeners who are interested in natural climate solutions get involved? And who else besides Running Tide do you think is doing some of the most exciting work in this space?
1: I think the figuring out how we can restore some uh, or or utilize some of the second growth growth forest around the world to, um, like, I, I think old growth forest should be untouched and we should just do everything we can to preserve it. But a second, third, fourth growth forest, I'd love to, I think that there's a lot of room for people to work there. Those are like the two things I think people can get involved and in. they're like, not, they don't happen in the middle of the ocean where you need a 400 foot ship. You know? <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, there's so many organizations. Like I get really excited by, uh, the sea wilding people in the UK. I think there's a ton of really fascinating restoration work happening in the UK and Scotland. I just fo- I follow a bunch of people there on Twitter and I just like get really excited by the work they're doing. Um, Billion Oyster Project in New York, I think is fascinating. And then I think there's just a ton of conservation groups who have done a really good job on kind of preserving biodiversity hotspots, which I think is fantastic work and needs to happen.
0: I think that was quite a terrific list.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, me too. <laughs> but we need it all. so.
0: <laughs> like- Extremely true. So... We're coming up on the end of the episode. This has been this has been a lot of fun, and we've learned a lot. We like to end our episodes with just a really quick um, rapid fire lightning round. So I'm just gonna shoot them at you. Um, so, what's your favorite carbon sink, Marty?
1: My favorite carbon sink? It's got to yeah. be the it's got to be the deep ocean. <laughs> it has to be great.
0: And it would be <laughs> concerning if you answered as something else. <laughs> uh, and what's what's your favorite book that you read this year?
1: Favorite book that I read this year. I read it every year. I read a few books every year, but um, I think one that people should read is Freedom's Forge by Arthur Herman. It's about the mobilization mm-hmm. in World War II. I give it to everyone in the company. I think it's a really important book because it shows the scale of what's possible, that w- what we can do when mobile, what we as, like a, as, as a society, as a civilization can do when properly motivated. So, Yeah, no, that,
0: that sounds amazing. And Hopefully, quarantine is largely over for you and your folks. But what's been your favorite COVID quarantine activity?
1: It's my favorite activity, full stop, is building Legos with my kids.
0: Mm, that's <laughs> um,
1: fun. <laughs> or, I mean, or playing in tide pools with them. Those are actually, I'd, I'd say those are the two top two, and they work really well during the pandemic. So
0: I love it. I love it. Um, and what keeps you up at night?
1: What keeps me up? The world, um, the world we're leaving to our kids, I think, and just the the, I, I, I brevi- brings me no no shortage of angst to think the the bounty of nature that I grew up with and won't be there for them. That makes me sad. So, it, it, it keeps me up at night, but it also wakes me up in the morning, gets me to work. So, <laughs> we
0: um we can deeply deeply relate to that, and finally. Uh, we're sort of drawing to the end of this year, but what are you most looking forward to in twenty twenty-two?
1: I'm gonna we're gonna give Godzilla a black eye. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna kill it, but it's gonna know we're there. So I
0: like it. No, no. I, I, I agree. That's a, that is definitely a great, great target for, for next year. Um awesome. Well, Marty, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for
2: joining us today. It's been really a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com to see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.